yeah, there there were growing pains, and you know, they hurt, but you come out at the end of them bigger. Dan Coyce, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Future Nostalgia? Hello, listener, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, international Muppet of Mystery. Today, we're chatting with Dan Coyce. Dan Coyce is an editor at Slate and a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of Facing Future, a book in the 33 and a third series of music criticism, and the co-author with Isaac Butler of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of the play Angels in America, which was a winner of the Stonewall Book Honor from the ALA. His memoir of Parenting Around the World, How to Be a Family, will be published in September of 2019. Dan and I had a great talk about traveling around the world, learning to be less precious, first concerts, and the relationship between parenting and music. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So you are a writer and an editor, um, but why don't you tell me a little bit more about uh, who you are and what you do? So I am a dad uh, who lives in the Virginia suburb, the Washington, D.C. suburbs in Arlington. But my uh, creative life and my job is that I'm a magazine editor at a magazine called Slate. It's a general interest web magazine. And then also a writer. I write for Slate. Um, I write for the New York Times Magazine and other places, and I write books. And I also podcast some. I was a, a founder of, of, of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and I like to drop in back on that show with the host who took over for me a few years ago uh, and drop in on other Slate podcasts and, and any other fun podcasts I can, which is why it's so delightful to be on this fun podcast. And in general, I am, as a writer and an editor, I'm really interested in the ways that families construct themselves and define themselves. And the book that I have coming out later this year in September 2019 is a story about our family and an extremely poorly thought out year-round journey that we took around the world in 2017. Uh, living in four different countries wow. for three months each in an attempt to sort of figure out uh, what family life is like uh, outside our East Coast parenting bubble. And it was a pretty epic journey with a, a lot of comical disasters that occurred along the way. <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, and then I wrote about it. <laughs> the book really came out of this sense that I think a lot of parents share that it really felt like, despite sort of all the advantages um, that, you know, we extremely middle-class parents were giving our kids, we didn't feel as though the life we were living was particularly fulfilling. It didn't give us time together, and it didn't feel like we were experiencing the world the way we wanted to. And we were lucky enough to be able to do something about it. Get very far outside of your comfort zone, it sounds like. <laughs> we were extremely far outside of our comfort zone uh, many times on this trip, yes. Uh-huh. I'm just, I think it's Margaret Atwood who who said that anytime something terrible is happening, or not even terrible, anytime any, anything um, stressful or bad or disastrous is happening, you can step back and say, this will all be material. <laughs> so, What's funny is that when you tell that to your kids, they don't think that's funny at all. 
No. <laughs> no. When you're something terrible is happening to your kids and you're like, well, don't worry, sweetie, this will be a great chapter in the book. They um they hit that shit. They 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 don't see it that way. No. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> How old are your kids? They're currently eleven and thirteen. When we went on the trip, uh they were nine and eleven. So you've just carted your kids around four different countries. When you were a child, did you have a very settled life or was it similarly nomadic? It was so settled. Um, I grew up in the, in the burbs, uh, outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, uh, and rarely left. Uh, you know, I was, I was born in 74. Um, and my family was, you know, we were fine, Money-wise, but we were pretty solidly middle-class, trending on lower middle-class, depending on how things were going with various people. Um, and we just didn't travel that much. And it was much less common in, you know, in the 80s for uh, a family of four to take a plane somewhere, for example. It was, it was very pricey to do that. We would go visit relatives and take these epic road trips to Joplin, Missouri to visit my grandparents or whatever. But for the most part, we stayed in Wisconsin. And uh, I mean, in high school, I didn't really travel anywhere. I took my first trip to New York when I was doing college visits my senior year, and that was a big deal. And even in college, I went kind of far away for college, but I didn't travel anywhere. I had friends who did who studied abroad, and my wife, uh, who I met in college, studied abroad, but I never did any of that stuff. And at some point in my twenties, I just sort of realized. What a, what a set of missed opportunities those mm. all were. You know, I, I didn't have any control over my inability to travel when I was a kid, but I had a bunch of options and opportunities that I could have seen more of the world. And that was one of the driving forces between wanting to get our kids out into the world, the sense that I th- we thought it really made a difference yeah. to kids to get a chance to understand that they're not, the center of the universe exactly i mean you want your kids to feel special but but we we didn't we didn't think our kids had any problem feeling special and certainly american kids uh you know especially white upper middle class american kids definitely rarely have a sort of base self-esteem problem like they are told from the get-go and treated from the get-go as if they are the most important things in the universe like they are priceless and we kind of thought it might do all of us a little good to to like not be priceless for a while to get shaken around and uh and be out of place uh and see that there's a lot of the world that where we don't fit in particularly well at all Mm -hmm. so i want to zoom in now on suburban milwaukee you said it was yeah suburban milwaukee yes so we're gonna get to your first song now so why, why don't you tell the listener what you have uh, sure. This, so this first song is um, uh, from 1991 when I was a junior in high school. Uh, and it is a song by R.E.M., uh, their song Perfect Circle. And it is specifically the version of Perfect Circle that they played on MTV Unplugged, uh, that TV show in 91. Put your hair back. You get to leave Eleven shadows On your sleeve Shallow figure 
Winner's I guess I have to ask if you discovered it by watching that program. Oh, I certainly discovered it by watching that program. I uh, set a, a timer on the VCR to record that that program, and then immediately uh, by that point, my junior in high school, I was a uh, a very very adept and experienced mixtape maker. Uh And so I had a setup that allowed me um, to record stereo tracks from our VCR to my dual cassette deck. And so I could take songs that I had recorded off the TV, whether just videos from MTV or live performances like this, uh, or even, um, uh, from movies, concert films, and other movies, and put them on mixtapes. And so, you know, that was that one thing. One reason I, I chose this song is that I wanted to talk a little bit about the mixtape as a kind of art form. I thought that this, for obvious reasons, this podcast would be an interesting place to do that. And I would like to hear your thoughts on the subject as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I considered myself, I fancied myself in those days a real maestro of the mixtape. And part of the goal of making a good mixtape was always to try and surprise even the the music lovers and the music aficionados you were making mixtapes for. And so uh, an alternate track like this one, particularly an alternate track that differed so dramatically from the, the album version of the song, mm-hmm. um, and which was so particularly beautiful, uh, was that made this song a uh, kind of like a staple for me on mixtapes. It was all, it was almost always uh, like end of side one, like emotional closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean the mixtape, first of all, what's the length of the tape? And so, you know, you need your closer for the first side, closer for the second side, right. things like that. So yeah, you have your staples. So this was a staple for you and it was sort of a, a side closer. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful song. Um, as with many early REM songs, the lyrics are pretty opaque. Uh, the live performance actually makes the lyrics a lot more comprehensible than they are on the uh, album version of the song. This, the album version of the song is on REM's first full-length album, Murmur. Um, you know, so appropriately named and called by some fans, Mumble. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and you know Michael Stipe's lyrics are clearer in this version, and the, what you can sort of parse or piece together out of those lyrics makes the song a kind of sentimental song about friendship. And it's he dedicates it at the beginning of the track, at least. I don't know if on the album, but it was eventually released on like a special CD decades later. I and I don't know if this appears on that, but in the version that I recorded off my VCR that it's still the version I think of and know, uh, it began with a dedication that he gave to someone, a friend of his, uh, saying, don't give up. And uh, in 91, you know, I, I still don't know who it was that he was dedicating the song to. In 91, from a, a singer who even then um, was pretty clearly coded as queer, um, that read you know, as a, as an AIDS era message of forbearance. Um, and whatever it was that this person he was dedicating the song to, there was a lot of emotion behind that. And so the whole thing was just, you know, it it was a, it was a, a sort of beautiful time capsule 
moment that was almost always unfamiliar to the people I was making mixtapes for, who were always, there was always some emotional bond there that when you're making a mixtape and giving a mixtape, you're usually trying to foster. Um, and so you were looking for songs like that. And, you know, like everyone, I think in those days who made, who really liked to make mixtapes for people, you, you know, I had a whole set of songs that, that I often used in similar places in mixtapes. I had a whole set of under 30 second songs that I would use when you just had 30 seconds you had to fill somewhere um, to get it to right to the end of the Maxell XL to 90 minute, 45 minutes <laughs> to a side cassette. Um, and, you know, when you're in high school, you like have the energy, I guess, to, yeah. and you, the passion to put that much effort in and care into this extremely disposable product that would almost, almost never be appreciated by the recipient uh, mm. in, a, in a manner befitting the amount of work you put into it. <laughs> yeah, you have the energy, you have, it's funny because you have the time, I guess. I, my math workbook was full of drafts of track lists for oh, next yeah. um, did you, I mean, you also Did you that. decorate the, um, the, like, the cassette inserts? A, a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, I, visual arts were never my strong suit, but I, I would I would draw some swirls on there with a pen, maybe, <laughs> depending, or you know, maybe some angular shapes if that was befitting the mood. Sure, yeah, um, if it's post punk. Yeah, but like you know, you're also making a mixtape for someone is kind of an act of care or um, like a, a a statement of interest. Like I I would like to be better friends with you or or something like that. Right. I would like to share these songs with you that I think are very important. Um, and also teenagers just ha- often engage with music in a much more sort of passionate and meaningful kind of way because oh, yeah. i was i was kind of evangelical with my tapes like i want you to like these things as much as i like them oh much. yeah 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 oh yeah that's an that's a perfect description of how you feel when you hand these things over and it means so much to you when you can get someone to connect a song connect to a song in the way that you do when you're a teenager absolutely so the fact that you had a timer set to catch this performance suggests to me that you were already a big rem fan uh they they were my band yeah they, mm. they i was an rem guy in those days i've written about this in fact one of the very first pieces i ever wrote for slate was a um a piece about a, an almost entirely imaginary musical rivalry uh <laughs> that sort of defined me as a person for many years which was the rivalry between rem and u2 um you know some people are are film noir people and some people are romantic comedy people and some people are chaos Muppets and some people are order Muppets. And I really thought that at that time you could be a YouTube person or an REM person, but, um, but you couldn't be both. Uh, you had to choose. And I was an REM person and I was setting myself up as a, a sort of a particular kind of, uh, floppy haired, sensitive teen boy. Uh, and that, that identity meant a lot to me. But also mm-hmm. the music really meant a lot to me, in in part because of its because of its ambiguousness and ambivalence. You could read a lot into it if you were a kid who was feeling a lot of feelings. You know, it it wasn't prescriptive really at all. You often couldn't even understand it, and so it really could could mean almost anything. Um, and you could choose the the sort of the feelings it gave you. And it, and it didn't have that kind of aggressive uplift that often, that even in those days, you two often had, although not 
nearly to the extent that the, that their later songs did. And so it felt, you know, to a teenage mind that was just sort of beginning to grasp what complexity in art could do and mean, it, REM offered a lot of that to me, at least. Um, at one point, my senior year, um, I somehow, I guess, just essentially due to budget cuts, I got hired to DJ a school dance. Um, and my brother was doing a little bit of amateur DJing in clubs. And so he had a board, like a, he would not, not let me use his good board, but he had like a rudimentary mixing board that he would let me use. And I took that to the dance and I, like, I DJed a fucking high school dance in suburban Milwaukee in 1992. And I was just awful at it. I mean, I, because my music taste was really, really, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it was extremely suburban white guy in an mm -hmm. era in which being like a college rock suburban white guy music fan definitely didn't include any hip hop, for example. You yes. know, this is a golden age of hip hop and I was not listening to hip hop at all. You know, DJing a high school dance for your entire high school is very different from making mixtapes for your close friends. And so like playing four R.E.M. songs in that in that, mm. that evening what did not play well at all. Mm hmm. It's um, I'm just imagining a, a high school dance where music that's suited for a quiet night in your bedroom is somehow being played in the sort of school gymnasium. I mean, so. you know, I I played the upbeat songs, but like no one mm -hmm. actually really wanted to dance to Orange Crush. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a charming mental picture I have. I mean, so. it's uh, it's hideously embarrassing in retrospect and. <laughs> Like it, 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 there's like one story I can tell to demonstrate like just how like racially and culturally blinkered I was in my mostly white high school in 1992. Like that's it, baby. That moment where, you know, you know, even so many of the kids in that school had a broader cultural base and understanding than I did. And they were all desperate for me to play anything that wasn't like, you know, just like college rock. But I didn't, ha I didn't have anything in my quiver that was not college rock. Why don't we move on to our next song, if you're ready? Uh, what do we have? All right, my next song is by Liz Fair. Uh, it's the final track on um, her 1993 album, Exile in Guyville, which came out my, the summer after my freshman year in college. And it's called Strange Loop. I broke up. So why don't you tell me about how the song came into your life? In college, I pretty immediately made friends with uh, a group of college radio DJs uh, at, the, uh, at the college radio station, the very, very good college radio station where I went to school at the University of North Carolina. The radio station there is called WXYC. It remains to this day a real bastion of independent music and of of Catholic with a small C taste, a very broad-minded musical taste. And what I think was what was interesting when I look back on that time and the way that my tastes were evolving was that 
freshman, sophomore, and junior year in college were the years that I first started to understand just how how my taste, which I had cultivated and prided myself on in high school, and which had in many ways set me apart and in my view above you know the the unwashed masses who just listened to the radio was in fact its own kind of narrow unthinking acceptance of a particular kind of genre right i thought of my taste as actually being very broad and much wider and more accepting and more open minded than other people's but in fact i just had a very specific idea of what um of what music could be and my the beginning of my freshman year in college i thought oh this college radio station seems great i don't know what a lot of this music is that they're playing but i you know i like music i should be in the college radio station and i went and did an interview at the radio station that that i later found out from friends of mine who worked at the radio station was universally viewed as one of the all-time most idiotic and hilarious radio DJ interviews they'd ever had because it was just me walking in convinced that I had incredible taste in music Mm -hmm. uh, and then talking about music in a way that revealed that I, that it wasn't just that my taste was narrow, but it was that I was aggressively uninterested in broadening it. You know, I think I shit talked hip hop in that inner, in that interview and uh, I should talk country music and why would anyone ever listen to country music? And I revealed that I was not particularly interested in any music from before like 1982. And, you know, I was just, I was not only uh, like lame, but I was incurious. Mm. And that was exactly the opposite of the way I had always thought of myself. But in fact, it was true. And the friendships that I made in the first couple of years of college really challenged a lot of my aesthetics and my beliefs about myself, I think in the end for the better, but it made for a couple of uncomfortable years as I started to come to terms with the notion that I was not in fact as cool as I thought I was and that the sort of self um, definition that, that I had used taste to present to the world um, was not maybe the healthiest way to think of myself or present myself. And um, all of this is sort of a roundabout way of saying I had a lot of friends in college with way better taste than me in music. Um, and I, at some point, I'm, ha- I'm happy to, to say I stopped thinking of them as posers who only pretended to like this difficult music that I'd never heard of and started to think of their taste and the things they liked as opportunities for me to learn new things on my own. And now Liz Fair was not particularly difficult. I mean, she was, you know, she was a lo-fi indie sound and her lyrics were challenging with her emotionally and intellectually challenging in a lot of ways, but her sound was not like, you know, she was not Sun Ra or something. She was not playing free jazz. She was not blowing my eardrums out. She was playing a kind of rock that I recognized, even if it, if it, if it was styled slightly differently. Mm-hmm. But she was one of many artists in those years who I first became aware of because someone I knew uh, was playing the record. And 
Um, and I wanted to know what it was and I really liked it and it became almost immediately an important part of my music listening experience. Um, and so Exile and Guyville was the album that I played basically nonstop sophomore year in college. Um, I played it for everyone I knew. I learned every song by heart and I, and it was a, it's a kind of a funny song kind of a funny album for someone from my particular background to become obsessed with in that it basically described it's unlike rem it's extremely specific right yes. in the in the milieu and the and the the life it's describing and the messages it's delivering and the the world that it came out of and was trying to describe and skewer is had nothing to do with my life. I was an extremely boring, straight uh, guy with a steady girlfriend um, who never went to parties, who was not particularly involved in a music scene, who did not live any kind of dangerous life at all, and who was not... Uh, like actually particularly provocative in his thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, but yet I glommed onto this album so instantly and found that it's so like defined a certain kind of, um, intelligent provocation and, um, and beauty, like a beauty of ideas and a beauty of sound for me for so long that it, that it really became a kind of, I think probably slightly comical uh, part of my of my self image and my representation to the world, but the album just meant so much to me, even though there's no particular reason for it to mean so much to me. You describe yourself as being sort of unprovocative. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean Liz Fair is, I mean her her early her reputation in her early years was very frank, very well, intellectually provocative, I think was the phrase you used was the fact that you hooked into this so strongly. Was that aspirational at all? Did you want to cultivate that in yourself or? Oh yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was, um, I was not like taking anyone home and making them like it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm sure that there was an aspect of that, right. That I wanted to think of myself as at least having a little bit of an edge and I didn't really have very much of an edge at all. I mean, I didn't even, at that point I, I didn't drink. Um, hmm. I was, I was one of those guys who would always like pride himself on how I don't need to drink to have fun. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I had, you know, I had no edge at all. And, um, and so there was, I'm sure there was an aspect of that, but I think what happened to me with that album as well is that pretty soon, you know, maybe six months into listening to that album all the time, I found that the songs that were the most meaningful to me on it were the ones that were less, um, in the sort of like sexually frank or relationship frank mode. Um, so not just, you know, flower, the, um, the, I want to be your blowjob queen song, but also, 
um, fuck and run or even help me marry, which is very specifically about a certain kind of, um, uh, 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 relationship or divorce song. Um, but that I found myself really drawn to the, what I think of now as sort of the beauty songs, the atmospheric tracks that, uh, are, are less poppy, um, that are less guitar driven, um, that are a little bit more ethereal in their sound and that, that seem to be striving, at least I thought then, and I still kind of think now for a slightly more universally relevant lyrical message, one that was less about provocation and more about a kind of, it's, it, I think a kind of spirituality, even though I don't know that Liz Fair would necessarily think of it that way, but strange loop as a song, um, in its structure, particularly the way that it um, begins as a very straight pop song, um, I mean an indie pop song, um, but but almost immediately begins kind of decomposing and breaking down into this long instrumental um, kind of run uh, in which over time the guitars and the drums all seem to sort of disassemble themselves. Uh, I think they go out of time with each other. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, and then sort of reassemble themselves at the end for one like kind of beautiful moment of, of togetherness, like the songs that did that kind of thing that were, um, that from an orchestration standpoint or from a composition standpoint where it seemed a little bit more ambitious and dreamy were the songs that I really began to connect to. And so strange loop in particular was a song that I, um, that I just played over and over and over again and that I would put on, uh, my, my disc man, uh, the portable CD player I had, which had a repeat song function. And I would just literally put on the album, fast forward to track 18, put it on repeat one and like walk around campus or ride my bike around campus. Um, or on the occasion that I got someone to loan me a car or when I was home in Milwaukee on breaks, I would drive around Milwaukee with that just like playing on, I guess, a like a fucking strange loop. Um, <laughs> but I would just play it over and over again. And the, the, mood it created um was to my mind a ex an extremely profound one now is it was my mind actually profound i'm sure not i was 20 years old but um at some point you exhaust yourself and then you you give yourself a break uh and then maybe a year or two later you return to it and you're like oh yeah yeah and then at that point it becomes the album that not only that you know back and forth, obviously, but also becomes so intimately tied to that whatever time in your life that it was. And so that's what, you know, Exile and Guyville is for me, a strange loop in particular, but also just Exile. It's, it's basically, it calls to mind my emotional state in 1993 and 1994, which was very up and down and involved me breaking up with that long-term girlfriend who died, who I had been going out with since freshman year of high school. And we'd continued into college and, um, and be, and beginning to sort of understand the ways in which I was not as, uh, uh interesting or amazing or compelling, uh, uh, intellectually or personally as I, 
had thought I had been as, as I had been raised to believe I was. Um, and, uh, and while also having my horizons broaden and meeting a whole group of, of brand new friends who would mean so much to me and would continue to be my friends for, you know, 24 years now, they are still my closest friends. And so it was, there was, there was a lot going on in that time. And it's very easy for me to call, um, the way I felt in that time back to mind just by playing that record. Liz Fair had a hand in humbling you. <laughs> I mean, I think she's done that to a lot of guys. <laughs> Is it difficult for you to listen to it now because of all that emotional baggage and weight, or do you enjoy revisiting no, it? No, I still really enjoy revisiting it. I mean, there's a kind of pleasure to like feeling things the way you once felt them. Um, and it wasn't a time of like real trauma. I mean, it would be different if, you know, I was, it was music that called to mind a truly horribly traumatic time in my life. It was just more a time of, you know, like reconfiguring the person I was for better and for worse. Growing pains. Yeah. There, there were growing pains and, you know, they hurt, but you come out at the end of them bigger. And I think I did. So why don't we move on to the next song? What's the third one you have for us? All right. The next track, track number three in my mixtape of life is by Yola Tango. It's uh, from their 1997 album, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One. It's a song called Deeper Into Movies. Make sure you do a clip from the fucking loud ass part. It's really funny. I, I'm going to cut this out. My my husband um, likes Yola Tango, and every attempt to get me into it has kind of bounced off. Oh, I don't think <laughs> so, you should cut that out because that's exactly what my story is, buddy. Okay, great. Well, why don't, why don't you tell me the story of you and Yola Tango? So Yola Tango is a, another band I was introduced to in college by that same group of cool WXYC DJ friends. Um, and they were a band I continued to really love in the, my post collegiate years. I graduated from college in 96. Um, by 97, around the time that this album came out, I had just gotten engaged to, uh, my now wife and we were, we had just moved up to Washington DC for grad school, um, from Chapel Hill. And, uh, and this was a time musically where I was, um, where I really was sort of becoming the, the, the much, the person of much broader taste that I had long imagined myself to be. It was also a time in the music business, maybe the last time in the music business in which, um, this kind of like, like, like wild varying of taste and, and, uh, Catholicism of, of taste was prized as a kind of, uh, badge of honor where you were expected if you were, a uh, like a thinking music fan to not only be listening to indie rock, but be listening to hip hop, but also to be listening to, you know, seventies Brazilian Tropicalia. And you were expected to be, to know your way around Venezuelan music. And you should be definitely be listening to French rap and you should be listening to, uh, Tuvan throat singers, like everything that you could possibly stuff into your ear holes as much as possible and as wild and weird as possible. Um, you should be doing it. 
and that and I and I loved that period of my musical life and of and a broader sort of musical taste. Like I found that so invigorating and fun. And um, you know, plenty of it was, I'm sure, bad. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we were not listening to the greatest Tuvan throat singers who ever Tuvan throat sang. Um, but there was a real joy in this notion that any music out there you could find worth in. And this was also simultaneously, you know, for those of us who were reading a lot about music and who aspired as I did to write about music, it was the very early days of poptimism as a kind of critical stance. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, also started to broaden my taste, this sense I finally started to shed this very Gen X, early Gen X sense that to like something that was popular uh, was impossible and and that certainly there was never anything interesting about what was popular. Um, and so that broadened my my taste probably even more fruitfully than all the tube and throat singers in the world ever could have. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was just a pretty glorious time to be a music fan, I think. And, you know, Yola Tango is right in the center of my sweet spot, right? It was, you know, white people playing guitars. Um, but they were a band that also was very indebted to a kind of uh, noise that had not previously been part of my listening experience. They were, they, you know, played at the Knitting Factory and played with Sun Ra and the orchestra and were, were very interested in and reverent towards a free jazz scene that I didn't really know anything about until I started listening to Yola Tango. And, um, and they were just fucking loud as hell. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I still, I still look back on some concerts I went to in those days and I cannot believe that I didn't wear earplugs. Um, but I, but just the wall of sound that you would be faced with at a Yola Tango show in the nineties or a, or a stereo lab show in the nineties was just so amazing and could just put you out of your head in such a, a glorious way. Um, that those are some of, you know, those are some of my greatest concert going experiences, but it did not always work when you tried to share them with other people. So I chose deeper into movies specifically because that's a song that from the, from the time it came out on this record, um, on I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, it has been a concert staple for Yola Tango. And it's a song that allows Ira Kaplan um, to just go bananas on guitar. And, you, you know, on the record, it's, you know, maybe five minutes long. Um, I'm looking now. Yeah, it's 523. Um, in concert, it's usually 10 or 12 minutes long. And the last seven minutes is just... Ira Kaplan going insane and it's unbelievably loud and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds to this incredible endless crescendo and just, and the times that I've heard it live from a concert that I went to in um, June of 97 at the 930 club in DC to seeing them um, in North Carolina just this past spring um, Every time they play that song, it's like a near religious experience for me. And I wanted to share that religious experience with uh, my to-be bride, uh, Alia, who I loved so much and who I shared so much musical taste with. 
And that was an important part of our relationship. And I took her to a, that Yola Tango show in 97 at the, um, at the catch or at the nine thirty club. And, um, and unfortunately I took her on a night where she had the flu oh, and no. had a, a pretty bad headache. Oh no. And, uh, we didn't wear earplugs and I will never forget the sight of, during deeper into movies, maybe three minutes into the song, her just walking away, walking to the the wall of the of the club. We were up in the balcony, just just like leaning up against the wall, then slouching down and covering her head in her hands, uh, as if she like all she wanted to do was just to escape everything about that moment. Uh, and she later told me that her she had never felt pain like that uh, in her head. <sighs> Like the pain oh that she felt uh, at minute three of, you know, probably 12 of deeper into movies at that Yola Tango show. Um, and it was a, a fruitful lesson that, that not everyone will love the same things as me. And it's mm-hmm. fine. It is fine that Alia to this day does not like even the calmest, peaceful, most beautiful Yola Tango songs. And whenever one of them comes on, we'll almost immediately go, is this Yola Tango? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a strong aversion sort of set up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not present it to her in the most ideal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> you're making me think now, because it's it's not even just that other people will dislike things you like, but very specifically, people you love may not understand or appreciate the things that you love and appreciate. And that's, you know, you can have a very deep loving relationship with someone who just does not like this thing that you is so important and, and revelatory and elevating yeah, for man. you. And like at 16, if, yeah. if my girlfriend had told me she didn't like R.E.M., I would have fucking broke up with her. <laughs> well, because there's clearly something wrong right. with her. She must be stupid. What the, like, hell, is, what the hell? Is she even a person? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and I, you know, mm-hmm. by the, t- by the time this came around, I think I was not quite so absolutist in my opinions, yeah. but it definitely, you know, this was a band that meant a lot to me and it was music that was in the process of sort of blowing and broadening my mind and knowing that it did nothing for Alia's mind other than just make it hurt, uh, was, was a bummer. Um, yeah. but you know, it was a useful lesson for marriage. And I think we both have learned this lesson over and over and over again, that, uh, that we can be passionate about things that the other person doesn't give a shit about. And, um, all that does is make, make the dynamics of our marriage, uh, broader and more interesting and give us also things in our lives that, exist just for us. And, um, I think we each have those things, you know, even now 20 plus years after we've been married, we each have those things in our lives, which no matter how much we share and how much we know about each other are still kind of little glorious mysteries about the other person. And I like that. Yeah. I was just thinking that it it keeps the other person somewhat mysterious and and interesting. And not even necessarily in a long-term, like, um, romantic partnership but you know just more generally there's this song that this person loves and i do not understand what they love about it but they clearly love it and isn't that a wonderful testament to just how different people can be yeah (laughs) no 
You mm-hmm. obviously, of course, love Yola Tango. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, I, I, I had to say, I don't have the strong aversion, but I didn't have an experience like your wife had. Right, you didn't go through um, actual aversion therapy. Yeah, exactly. I did not feel physical suffering when being exposed to them. Right. So it's not like, you know, um, a Pavlovian thing, uh, or I guess the opposite. Um, but uh, they they, they kind of passed me by every time I've sat down to you know, listen, and I, I have been exposed to them a number of times. They just sort of pass through me. Um, so whatever it is, it doesn't turn me off, but it doesn't turn me on either. So, but that's fine. Everyone's different. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> yep. So, but have you listened to, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let me make you a mixtape. Right. Always right. That's what we want to do. That's when we hear that. It's like, it's, ah, it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Yeah. Like oh. if I can find the right song for you, that'll unlock the door. For Yola Tango, for so many people, that right song has always been Autumn Sweater, right? Which is also on the same album and is sort of their, mm-hmm. was their big, uh, the closest thing they had to a kind of like alternative charts hit. Um, and like I thought that that song was just like universally lovable. Like it's impossible to not like that song. And <laughs> like maybe like three months ago, I was playing it in the car, and. And Ali was like, you know, I don't even really like this song. And I was like, what? You what? How's what? No one. They play the song in like Starbucks. But no, she, she just doesn't really like it. Doesn't do it for her. Yep. So, um, correct me. Um, at least some of the members of Viola Tango are also music critics, right? Um, they definitely come out of uh, that universe. And um, James McNew, who. Um, has played bass and keyboards for them for a really long time. I believe Diz does have a background as a music critic. Um, Ira and Georgia, the married couple at the center of the band for its entire history, um, have definitely have the encyclopedic music knowledge of music critics and, in mm-hmm. fact, have, have, have named songs after inside music critic jokes that are so inside that I still, to this day, don't quite understand them. Um, so yeah, there's, that's like, um, you know, there one knock on them often has been that there's a kind of like cold intellectualism to the way that they use, um, and, and utilize other styles of music that, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's a kind of appropriation when they play with orchestra or sort of dabble in free jazz, to me, they have always just seemed like real fans um, of that music, and and they certainly have been ambassadors for it for a, like an entire generation of um, ambitious listeners. You know, I mean, basically everyone I know who true who just loves music between the ages of thirty nine and forty six. Um, has had an experience of of discovering a song um, because Yola Tango covered it and being led from that into an experience with a with you know a whole set of different bands or sounds and and that you know that's a real that's something that really good bands I think often give their fans that's something that REM did right that's something that you know there there certainly are for people almost exactly my age often we first heard the velvet underground because they because rem covered them or the way we first heard pylon because rem covered them um and 
uh, we we started to understand what Patty Smith's deal was because she appeared on an REM record, um, and that's one thing I love about bands that are really engaged with music history in a kind of music criticism way. I love that they view it as part of their goal and mission. Um, it seems to me to uh, to find music that their fans might also love and get it to them in ways that intrigues them. Well, why don't we move on to the next song? What's the fourth one you have? Song number four um, is a song from uh, much later. We're doing a big leap here. Um, What I wanted to do for these final two songs was uh, talk about two songs in the context of uh, parenting and and my kids. And Mm -hmm. so I have one song from the sort of the earlier years of uh, my kids' lives Although not super early. It's not like Baby Shark or something. Um, (laughs) And then a song from more recent times. Um, So um, this song, song number four, uh, is by Casey Musgraves. It's uh, called Follow Your Arrow. So there's lots of noise. Now that you've explained the rationale, this song choice makes more sense to me because I did think it stood out as being different from the others um, in a bunch of ways. I mean, it's it's country or country-ish, um, but more specifically, it's it it feels very feels very much like the kind of lesson you would want a, a child to absorb. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you have kids and you are a person who really cares about music and really all any kind of art you spend or at least i'm i won't universalize this maybe some people are um less stupid about this than me i spend a lot of time thinking about what kinds of music and art i want my kids to experience and appreciate and enjoy which is to say i spend an unhealthy amount of time thinking about their taste and what I can do to mold it. Uh, and that's like embarrassing, right? It's, it's you, of course I want my children to be free thinkers and to turn into exactly the kind of people they're going to turn into. But also I don't want them to only like shitty music <laughs> and, and I don't want them to only read shitty books and I want them to know what good movies are and what good writing is and what, what art, what art has to offer them. Uh, like that seems like that is part of my job as a, yeah. a parent. I mean, to to sort of put it a slightly more charitable spin, you want you want to help them develop a rich inner life. Yeah, but also I don't want them to play shitty music in the house all the time. <laughs> There's an element of self preservation yeah. there. <laughs> um, and so, and so, you know, we listened as they were very young. We listened to a lot of stuff that they loved that was not our shit at all we watched so many episodes of the backyardigans and had a backyardigan cd and listened to that with them and we listened to uh you know one direction and and stuff that was very popular with them and people their age when they were in second or third or fourth grade we also tried to play a lot of 
musicals for them, like interesting mm -hmm. musicals and get them intrigued by that. Like that was a route to interesting musical storytelling and something that they and we, we thought could have in common. And so there were long periods in our musical lives where we were listening to Matilda, uh, the Broadway musical for years. And I know, you know, I know that score, um, and those songs front to back. And we listened to Hamilton for years and, uh, and, to, and into the woods and those all, you know, became sort of touchstones in our life. But I also wanted them. I also wanted to find pop that would appeal to them and mm -hmm. be smart and good. And yes, have messages that like, that I wanted to hear them singing along to. And, um, and country in particular can be a kind of or country-ish, as you accurately peg Casey Musgraves as, can be a tough sell for uh, for con for contemporary suburban kids whose friends are mostly listening to pop and hip hop. Like country is not really on the radar of most of the people who my kids are hanging out with in Arlington, Virginia. There are a few there are a few kids who are you know sort of diehard country music fans, um, but that's not it's not particularly popular, and so. I, you know, I, I, I now really love country music. Uh, it's an important part. It's an emotionally important part of my listening to me. I, I really love the songwriting craft that goes behind a lot of these songs. Um, mm -hmm. I think that women in, in country in particular are doing some of the most interesting songwriting and new music going on right now. And, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to get my kids to love Yola Tango or, <laughs> or even really like rock particularly, yeah. which is fine. There's no reason that they need to love rock, but I like the idea of them finding their way into a culturally rich kind of heritage music that country can be. And, um, and so I tried to find songs that might appeal to them. And that, that first Casey Musgraves record, um, same trailer, different park was really, were, was really great for that. That was a, those were very singable songs. Um, they they loved her voice. They loved her look. Um, they they loved the messaging behind a lot of the songs. They didn't understand the messaging behind some of the other songs. <laughs> um, but this song in particular, if you know the beat and hook seem straight out of like a you know a music together class for kids. Mm -hmm. It's very sing-alongable, and the actual message of it is something that they loved and was very in tune with the kind of messaging that they were getting all over the place. This idea of being yourself, which is basically, that's like the defining message of, of elementary school at this point to America's kids. Um, and even though it is essentially contradicted by the actual atmosphere of elementary school, which is, which still very much prizes and in fact depends upon a kind of conformity of thought and action. Uh, like the message of being yourself is still, that's the, that's what kids get told and they really mm -hmm. absorb that. And this song presents it in what I thought was like a, a kind of like spunky and also slightly spiky way. So we played it a lot and they listened to it a lot. And at some point I started thinking about well, what is the first concert that my kids are going to go to? Yeah. Uh, I remember my first concert. I'm sure you remember your first concert. Who's your first concert? 
I grew up in rural Newfoundland. Oh, God. Um, Bands don't tour there. (laughs) So, I mean, we would have, like, our local folk music and everything. So I I grew up having public performances of that. So I have a strong memory of there being a dance in the town square in the summer when I was 14. And one of the big... Uh, Newfoundland traditional folk bands came and and played. And it's very sort of Irish trad kind of music. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is my first like big concert where there's a stage with a stack of speakers, and if you get close enough, you can feel it vibrating in your ribcage. What is the name um, of that traditional I Newfoundland? I think it was folk? the Irish Descendants. The Irish Either Descendants. that or the Masterless Men. One of them. So <laughs> Masterless Men is a great name for a band. <laughs> Basically, a band of uh, 18th century anarchists. So. Oh man, that's great. Uh huh. So yeah, my my first concert experience is a little bit unusual because I wasn't really, I didn't live in, I didn't live on the North American mainland. Right. So, right. Anyways, but that's go defining, on. right? That's defining yeah. oh, in its yeah. own way, and it's an experience Absolutely. you remember. You know, I, I Absolutely. my first concert was in excess opening for the Go Go's. And wow. that I really, I, I love that that is my first concert. It is, mm-hmm. it, it really, uh, it, it still defines my musical taste in many ways to this day. And, uh, there are two bands that I still love listening to. And it's a show that I still remember very clearly. And I'm so happy I saw, and, you know, I'm just dumb enough that I wanted my kids when they went off to college and people asked them, what's your first concert? I wanted them to have a, like a good answer. Yeah, And so I made sure that the first concert they ever went to was uh, Casey Musgraves opening for Willie Nelson at Meriwether Post Pavilion outside D.C. Uh, on the tour, uh, on her tour for this album. And um, I have, you know, I remember that concert so clearly and what a beautiful day it was. And we all sat out on the lawn and my kids were probably 10 and 8. Or no, nine and seven, and um, and we all sat on a blanket and they listened to some songs and they sort of ran around on the lawn for other songs. But when this song came on, we all sang along to it, and I shot video as proof so I can show it to them later um, <laughs> that they went to a great show for their first concert and and it was a show that I loved sharing with them and an experience that I really treasure. And, and, and so I like to think of this as like a positive result to my neurotic, insane (laughs) attempts to shape their musical taste. Well, it's good. You have the, you have the degree of self-awareness to try and sort of uh, hone that instinct into a positive direction. Is it good? Is it good? Or is it? Well, it's better than if it was unthinking. I guess. Or does it just suggest a certain kind of pathology? You could be one of those classic rock dads. Yeah, like, I could be. I did not put my kids in like Motley Crue onesies. You'll like good music, which will alienate you from all your repairs, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. That is a very sweet story. So, um, Casey Musgraves, who is she? I don't know anything about this artist. Oh, she, um, she as of today... She, as we're recording this, she is the winner of the uh, 2018 Village Voice Paz and Jop poll. Oh, my God. Her most recent album. Uh, she is a 
she is a, a pop country artist who, um, for the last several years, has sort of been the face of a very particular uh, debate in country music, uh, mm. which is basically about the role of women in country. Country radio over the last five or six years has been playing has been playing fewer and fewer women, um, which is insane in a in a you know a, a musical genre that has produced some of the biggest female stars, you know, that music has ever seen, you know, from Dolly Parton to Loretta Lynn, um, to Carrie Underwood, to Reba McIntyre. Um, but you know, it's, if you're a woman in country right now, you basically can't get played in country radio. It's, you know, it's some insane percentage, like 85% or 90% of songs in country radio are about men or by, by men. And they're often this very kind of like gross bro country, where it's always like, you know, the only appearances that women make in these songs is that they're wearing tight jean shorts and they're sitting on the hoods of pickup trucks drinking beer with their guys. And Casey Musgraves uh, has made three records now and and sings very delightful and well-written pop-oriented songs, but with a very particular kind of like good, interesting working class um, bet, you know, that first album was called same trailer, different park. And a, a lot of the songs are about, uh, uh, about economic insecurity and, um, and about romance and love, but also about sort of dirt, you know, hard scrabble living and, um, and with very often specifically feminist messages and um, and she's had a lot of trouble, like many of her peers, getting played on country radio, even as she's been kind of adopted by uh, outside Nashville uh, country fans as a kind of standard bearer for the music that country radio often won't play. So she's, for example, been nominated for a bunch of uh, Grammys um, and won a lot of critics' polls, even as the ostensible genre in which she sings still won't play her on their flagship radio stations. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's starting to change a little like the, you know, as country music evolves, I do think that there is starting to be more of a place for artists like Casey Musgraves. And I, you know, I have high hopes that country music will, that the mainstream country music will change and let more women, um, who are doing such really interesting songwriting, and performing into that world. But it's a, a kind of a weird uphill battle for someone that good who sells so many records to people who don't think of themselves otherwise as country music fans. Yeah. And I mean, as you say, like it, it's a return to what country has been like, I am not a particular fan, but I can, I'll just off the top of my head, think of seven or eight, like Titans of country who are women. Like, right. And who sang about, yeah women's experiences uh in very particular ways like you know a song that i love a lot um that i often think of when i think about casey musgraves work or the work of other women um writing right now who are really trying to consciously write about about women's experiences um is this great old loretta lynn song um called the pill which she recorded in the early 70s, but which her label wouldn't let her put out for several years because it's very specific, because it's about birth control pills and about the particular kind of, um, of feminist um, freedom 
that being able to go on the pill gave the main character of that song. And it's not a song about like sexual libertinism. It's not a song about um, sleeping around even. It's a, it's written from the point of view of a housewife and mother who has spent you know, years popping out babies uh, for her no good husband, and she is sick of it. And the pill is the thing that has set her free from that life and has allowed her to get a job and do live uh, something closer to the kind of life she wants to live. I mean, definitely right now, the mode in popular country music is very small C conservative. I mean, sometimes it's it's politically conservative as well. But it's very, from a gender standpoint um, and, a, and a sexuality standpoint, it's very, it's about a bunch of very rigorously enforced gender roles. Um, and so a song like Follow Your Arrow, which, you know, in a, in a lighthearted and in a lighthearted way that uses wordplay and that tweaks the listener in sort of funny ways, but is very specifically devoted to, um, to sexual freedom, reproductive freedom, religious freedom, and is queer friendly and talks about smoking pot. These are very specifically messages that I want my kids to be absorbing. I want them to think about a kind of joyousness uh, and openness of opportunity, um, not just to like be yourself in the in the way that they get delivered by their teachers all the time, but really to be yourself even if uh, even if it is something that pisses other people off. That pisses other people off, yes, or even that just that you don't truly understand yet or that is unfamiliar to you. To know that there is some possible future in which you might want to kiss girls, like, it, that matters to me. And that's, like, sort of hokey and and um, and a little bit pie-eyed. But, like, when you're raising girls in, in this time and era, um, like, you want those messages to be, like, really crystal clear and delivered in a way that they can relate to and that they can then sit with you at a concert and sing really loud and proud, surrounded by a bunch of other people who are singing it, too. Well, what do we have paired with this? Uh, all right. The final song on my list um, is by Lord, and it's a song that came out uh, in 2017. Uh, it's called Green Light. Okay, so you set up our last two songs as basically interfacing with your life as a parent. Um, so is this a song that your kids are quite fond of? Or? It is a song they love uh, mm-hmm. from an album that they love. Uh, a, a song that we both love and an album that they love more than I do. <laughs> I, do not, I don't love most of the songs on this most recent Lord record, but I really, really, really do love this one. Um, in part because I think it's a, a really um, a, a really well written and beautifully performed uh, and extremely well arranged song. Like I think it's uh, it builds in a way that I find very very satisfying. 
but also because, as with all of these songs, uh, it's very tied for me to a very particular time and place. And I chose this song because it's a song that, to me, most uh, encompasses the experience of that trip around the world that we took in 2017 um, that is the subject of the of the book that I have coming out later this year. Um, we started that trip. The first of the four countries that we went to was New Zealand. And we lived in Wellington in the first three months of 2017, which happened to be the time that this song and then this album came out. And Lord is from New Zealand. She's a Kiwi. She grew up uh, not in Wellington, but around uh, near Auckland. And, um, and she's very embedded in uh, the New Zealand artistic community, and it's a very small place. And so it didn't take long but, you know, for us to move there, for us to meet people who were very personally invested in her art and in her success because they knew her or they knew her, her parents or they knew her friends or they had gone to school with someone who went to school with her or whatever. And um, like many small places, I expect you found this to be true in Newfoundland, um, there people who li have lived there their entire lives um, feel very personally connected to the prominent citizens uh, in ways that can be both uh, amazing and joyous and sometimes uh, weird and damaging. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, Lord, in, in the time before we lived there and also for a while while we were living there, endured her ups and downs with the people of New Zealand. Um, every time she would say something mildly critical of New Zealand, definitely every newspaper would splash it on the front page and ask, how dare she? Um, but also people loved her and loved her music and played it all the time. And it was for, you know, when we lived there, this was a song you heard coming out of every car in downtown Wellington. Um, cause it was summer there. And so people were driving around with their windows down and, and blasting the song. And mm -hmm. so it's very tied to me, to this time and place, uh, these first three months in Wellington, the time uh, when the trip was probably at its most simple and enjoyable, um, before really most of the things that went wrong went wrong. And, mm. um, and when uh, it was still very open with possibility in a way that seemed reflected in the kind of open vistas that the, sonically that the song produces. It's interesting because when you told me that this reflected that year you spent traveling around the world, it suddenly clicked into place better. It's like, oh, there is something about this song that feels like airports and driving down unfamiliar highways. Um, and that's not always her mode. And she she's really good at it when she does it. Um, and yeah, it's a good, it's a great road song. It's a song that someone is going to put in a movie someday and some like extremely dramatic, uh, scene, like you can really see it, right. It's very cinematic. Um, the specific visual memory that I have associated with this song is, um, on a very windy, stormy day, Wellington has more than a share of windy, stormy days, uh, even in the summer. 
uh, it's the only place I've ever lived where I have been, literally been blown off my feet by a gale. I, I read some sort of little list that said it was the windiest city in the world. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, yes, meteorologically, mm-hmm. it is the windiest city in the world. Harper, my younger daughter, and I were driving home from somewhere, and we were driving. We Wellington is at the very south tip of the North Island of New Zealand, and so a lot of it is right on the ocean. We were driving home from something, you know, in some gymnastics class or some shit, and the this song came on right as we were driving past Ohiro Bay and the windswept rocks and the pounding surf. And uh, Harper said, pull over, pull over, pull over. And I pulled over into the parking lot and we just sat there and listened to the song um, as the storm blew in and the waves crashed. And then we played it again. And then we played it one more time and we <laughs> listened to it three times in a row. And then we drove home and we just we both sort of said to each other okay this will be a this will be a thing from this trip that we will remember nice. um, and i've talked with her about it since then you know when you're um when you're nine uh you're still sort of just at the beginning of making memories that are really going to stick um and one goal of this trip for for my wife and i um was to have a set of memories lodged in our kids heads that would be meaningful and that would have all of us in them you know i have a lot of memories from from childhood and you know including from when i was nine or 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 around that age um and some of them have to do with my family as a unit but most of them don't most of them are about school or about friends or about you know the petty humiliations of childhood or um about sports i mean like i remember more details about the lineup of the 1982 milwaukee brewers than i do about what was up with my family (laughs) in 1982 and and one thing we wanted out of this trip was for them to have a whole set of memories both good and bad that were about all of us that were about the four of us doing this thing together and The trip was a failure in a lot of ways. It was a success in a lot of ways, but the main way that it was a success is that we still can talk about these memories with them. Yeah. And, and I think we will be able to forever. Parenting is very humbling in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is, is knowing, uh, just how little of the work and sweat and tears and effort you put into it will ever stick in your kids' memories. I mean, you know, the first five years of a kid's life are just torturous for parents in many ways. And you are busting your ass to make them safe and happy and comfortable and loved. And while if if you don't do those things, the effects will be felt throughout a kid's life, they won't actually remember any of the individual things you did. And that is like, that's maddening. Um, and so you spend a lot of time when you're a parent thinking about thinking sort of with this odd future nostalgia about how your kids will one day think about this thing that you are experiencing with them right now. Um, and it it puts you out of your head a little bit in crazy ways. Um, but it also really makes you prize the things that happen that where you really feel like, oh, uh, wow, I nailed this because it doesn't happen that often. 
Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, if listeners are interested in reading your work or getting in touch with you, where might they look? Uh, you can look so many places. Uh, yeah. I'm, you know, the internet. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dan Kois, D-A-N-K-O-I-S. Um, I write for Slate. Um, you can find my work there at slate.com. Um, the main thing I would beg, beg, beg your listeners to do if they uh, particularly um, are interested in this trip we took uh, is look for the book. It comes out in September of 2019. It's called How to Be a Family. Um, it will be on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere. Um, and I think that it is funny and interesting and honest uh, about the about what we learned and didn't learn from taking this trip. Um, and it contains a number of extremely charming hand-drawn maps uh, made by an 11-year-old. So if for no other reason, please check it out for that. I, I was sold already, but the maps just put it over the top Great. for me. <laughs> so. Great. That's a one fail made. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. me. Thanks. This was really fun. Many thanks to Dan for sharing his life and music with us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm, like The Spouter Inn, which is a new one, where two hosts unpack great texts. One of them is an academic and is very familiar with them. The other one isn't and is kind of encountering them fresh. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 28. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King. You can find the show on Twitter at This Is Your Mix. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. Hearing from listeners is basically the best part of any day, whenever it happens. If you want to support this podcast, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave a review on iTunes. That particularly helps with the mysterious magic of the algorithms. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. We'll hear you next time. <laughs>